0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Advances in the Standard of Care in TNBC, Addressing Health Disparities and Integrating ADCs into Treatment, is provided by Axis Medical Education, and is supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives.
1: Hello, and welcome to this educational activity. I am Dr. Kristen Whitaker. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Clinical Genetics at Fox Chase Cancer Center, where I see patients with breast cancer as well as patients without cancer that have a high risk of breast cancer. We're joined today by two faculty panelists, Ricky Fairley, CEO of Touch, the Black Breast Cancer Alliance. We're also joined by Dr. Sarah Tulaney, who wears many titles, but she's the associate director of the Women's Cancer Center, and she's at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And here's a disclaimer and a disclosure indicating that we may in fact be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. Here's our financial disclosure information. I hope that this will be a very valuable session for you and see that, and we hope to achieve a few objectives. And now we'll have Ricky Fairley talk to you a bit more about some of these disparities and inequities in triple negative breast cancer.
2: I'm Ricky Fairley, and I am a 10 year survivor of triple negative breast cancer. I'm very pleased to have this talk with you today. Let's talk about triple negative breast cancer and really breast cancer overall for black women. It's really a different disease state for black women. So I'm going to cover today the state of black breast cancer, some key factors affecting the mortality of black women, um, our perception of clinical trial research, and some research that I recently did under the title Black Data Matters and how I'm working really hard to change the game on the situation. Breast cancer is one of the most fatal health issues for black women, especially relative to white women. We are dying at a 41% higher rate than white women. Black women under 35 get breast cancer at twice the rate and die at three times the rate, well before they would have their first mammogram at age 40. Black breast cancer survivors like me have a 39% higher risk for, for breast cancer recurrence compared to white women. and That's really true for triple negative breast cancer because we don't have a drug to prevent recurrence. Triple negative breast cancer is the only breast cancer subtype that doesn't have a drug to prevent recurrence, which makes us special and different and more deserving of attention from the science. Black women with breast cancer have a 52% higher risk of death than white women. These numbers are devastating and really need to be addressed. So let's talk about metastatic breast cancer. The odds of getting stage three or four disease versus stage one disease among black women is almost four times that of white women. Black women are 61% more likely to develop metastatic breast cancer than white women. And black women are diagnosed with de novo metastatic breast cancer at a 58% higher rate than white women. This means their breast cancer diagnosis was metastatic from the beginning. And again, these numbers are astounding. The risk of developing triple negative breast cancer is nearly threefold higher in black women versus non-black women and we know that it has a worse prognosis. 20 to 30% of breast cancers diagnosed in black women are triple negative, and women under the age of 40 have a twofold higher risk of being diagnosed with TMBC than women ages 50 to 64. Women diagnosed with late stage breast cancer are 69% more likely to have triple negative disease than other breast cancer subtypes. Black women are less likely to survive five years, 76.9, versus 82.9% for white women. We don't really know why the mortality numbers are so devastating, but there are a lot of contributing factors that indicate that our bodies are different. Black bodies are different and warrant different treatment options. So let me go into those a little bit. And it really just will dictate kind of the risk of breast cancer for black women. So black women are at higher risk for triple negative breast cancer mortality. We have Um, more stage three tumors, positive lymph nodes, bigger tumors, and um, black women have an 18% higher risk of death due to non-metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Some other factors increase our incidence of of, of getting breast cancer. Um, Obesity is really a problem in black women, and this is a risk factor for breast cancer. Black women have a significantly higher BMI compared with white women. Having a BMI of greater than 30 kilograms is associated with an increased risk for TMBC and an increased risk for other breast cancers as well in postmenopausal women. Another factor that could impact this is that most Black mothers are single parents. Almost 70% of all Black working women are single moms, making them the primary if not sole economic providers for their households. So what does that mean? That means without, without disease, we are, you know, working hard to take care of our kids. They're the priority. Add breast cancer to those dynamics and what choice will a single mom make between missing work and not feeding her kids and maybe not going to treatment or not getting a mammogram? So her focus is on her kids. Black women may miss a risk producing opportunity because breastfeeding may not be an option for them. So breastfeeding is, is, is shown as a way to potentially pre- prevent TNBC. 85% of white mothers say they have breastfed their babies versus 76% of black mothers. A study was done by the Ad Council a couple of years ago and clearly African-Americans don't talk about health at the kitchen table. This study identified that 92% of black women agree that breast health, health is important. Only 25% of black women have recently discussed it with their friends and family, but a mere 17% have taken steps to better understand their risk. So we're not talking about it, it's not top of mind. And a recent study also showed that screening protocols are not clear to black women. 47% of black women of all ages say they don't even know how often they should be screened for breast cancer. 28% of all women have not scheduled any breast cancer screening during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's really wreaking havoc on, on our community that percentage drastically increases when you look specifically at black women. So the pandemic has had a very negative impact on screening. So let's talk about some of these ethnic disparities. Um, Black women also experience treatment delays. We are much more likely to delay following up with a doctor after an abnormal mammogram. And sometimes that's based on insurance. But 20% of black women wait more than 60 days to follow up with their doctor compared to 12% of white women. And only 69% of black women start treatment within 30 days of diagnosis compared with 83% of white women. Young black women have the longest and most significant delays in care. And why is that? They could be single moms. They may have religious reasons. They may not trust their doctors. A A lot of reasons for this. But these delays can cost them their life. Now let's talk about clinical research. The unique physiology of black women, which we've identified as different now, has not been factored into clinical trial research. And there's a quote that I'd like to read to you from Dr. Jonathan Jackson, founder of Community Access from Massachusetts General Hospital. Inadequate minority representation in drug trials means that we are not doing good science. And if we're not doing good science and releasing these drugs out out into the public, and we are at best being inefficient and at worst being irresponsible. So we must figure out how to get more black women included in research. Blacks represent 13.4% of the US population, but only 7% of clinical trial participants overall. And since 2016, the FDA has approved four novel drugs for breast cancer. However, none of those clinical trials had more than 3% black participants. The disparities are really significant in representation in clinical trials. And it's been that way for a while and it's getting worse over time. So what are the barriers to clinical research? Um, Last year, really earlier this year, I went out on a mission to establish a, um, um, a program called Black Data Matters. And I really wanted to dig into how we are different and what's driving the emotional barriers to keeping black women from participating in research. We embarked upon this study and I partnered with some partners. I knew that I couldn't do this alone. And together we did a study with the following goals. We wanted to really focus on increasing the participation of black women in clinical trials. What would it take so we can advance the science and save lives? We also want to disrupt how the breast cancer ecosystem engages Black women in clinical trial research. With 3% participation, something is wrong. And this would all strive towards better health equity for Black women that have diagnosed with or at risk for breast cancer and help us get the best breast care possible. We did six-hour-long individual interviews and 14 two-hour focus groups for 48 participants. Um, the age range was 27 to 63, mean age of 42. And um, the patient population included 19 patients with stage two and three breast cancer, and 10 patients with stage four breast cancer. So we really tried to get the gamut of people with early stage and late stage breast cancer. And one of the one of the most confounding messages was coming from a breastie: don't do a clinical trial, you'll get the sugar pill and die. And that was from a metastatic breast cancer patient, a black woman. So when I say as a breastie, when a breastie says something, it's a credible thing. And to to another breastie, so we, what we found in the research was that our breasties were giving incorrect information to other breasties because of their own personal fears and biases. Um, Although benefits, many view trial participation as risky because the clinical trial's experimental nature, and they believe they they could cause serious and long-term side effects. So. Um, There are also logistical barriers to trial participation, including, am I going to have to pay for it? Is it far away from my home? Is it going to interfere with my work? Also, uncertainty shapes our our emotional barriers of trial participation. Almost two-thirds of the patients in our study have actually discussed a clinical trial with their doctor, but it's the patient who is more likely to initiate the conversation. Almost a third of the patients we talked to who discussed clinical trials with their doctor felt somewhat are not informed after the conversations. The top reasons why eligible patients didn't participate include not having a well-established relationship with their HCP, feeling rushed in the conversation, and a preference for their current treatment just because they were somewhat comfortable with it. So those are some of the fears. But the good news though is that there's hope. And what I learned in talking to these breasties that if we have culturally relevant and educational messaging um, from a trusted member of the community, a breastie, it's effective in driving a perception shift, with many of the respondents willing to reconsider their hesitation or skepticism once they talk to a breastie with very simple messaging. But the most compelling, the most compelling messaging that really worked with this audience was: do it for your daughter, do it for your granddaughter, think about your community, think about your family. Thank you so much, Ricky, for that really
1: informative talk on disparities in triple negative breast cancer. Now we're going to move on to a few questions that are relevant to this topic, and our faculty panel will address these questions. So the first question, and Ricky, I think I'm going to start with you on this. How can shared decision-making that is more inclusive and less biased be integrated into treatment planning for triple negative breast cancer?
2: It really is shared decision-making because it's really a family decision but we have to provide an outlet for black women to be able to really understand the basics of clinical trial research we have to make sure that they are equipped with information and that is ground zero and right now the 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 literacy around this is very very low so even before they can talk about making the decision about it we need to educate them and that should come from every place that it can from the provider from um from the health institution from whoever they interact with, so that when they go home and talk about it, they feel good about being able to even explain it to their family. But it really is, even before they can get to making a decision, it's about education.
1: Yeah, I think education is, is so important. We see that definitely is the case with improving clinical trial enrollment. Dr. T'lady, what what is your take on this? I know you're at uh, the Dana-Farber Institute where you have a lot of resources and you know, probably support for clinical trials. Kind of what has been your experience in terms of trying to improve the shared decision making? And I think Ricky did a wonderful job discussing the
0: challenges that we face with clinical trial enrollment. And I think one of the things you highlighted so nicely is that it is really a discussion between the patient and physician. And sometimes there are patient barriers to clinical trial enrollment, but sometimes there are physician barriers to enrollment. Because I thought one of the things you brought up um, really nicely is sometimes it's a patient who's coming to the doctor asking for the trial rather than the doctor offering the trial to the patient, which I think is actually such an important point. Um, And I think sometimes there are challenges that physicians face with getting patients on trials. And in fact, our group did a survey uh, of physicians about what they felt were barriers to clinical trial enrollment for them. One of which was it's hard for them to keep track of all the trials that are available for patients and to figure out how to match uh, patients to trials. And so I think there needs to be better systems in place for that. And in fact, our group created a matching system on a website so the physician can just plug in a couple key um, factors and then it spits out the trials that are available um, at our institution just to make them aware so that they can match the patient uh, to the trial. But again, it's getting more and more complex as there are, Um, more nuances, like more genomic alterations you need to take into account when trying to figure out if a trial would make sense. It's just a lot of pieces of information um, for physicians to, to keep note of. And I think better technological systems to help with that would be important. It also takes time uh, in clinic to have a discussion that shared decision making process is not a quick one. um, And I think needs to be dealt with carefully, um, you know, with really an informed process between the physician and the patient. And so, you know, I think oftentimes physicians feel pressured and rushed um, because they have a certain number of patients they gotta get to in clinic. And so sometimes I think that plays a role in terms of part of this, you know, decision-making process. So I think there are challenges on on both ends of it, and I think we all need to do better because I really think clinical trials are the path to not only allowing patients to get access to new drugs in a timely manner, uh, but also for us to be able to make dramatic improvements in care, and so I think lots of systematic changes are really needed to make this process better.
1: I think this issue of implicit bias is a real one in terms of clinical trials. I mean, there have been studies that have demonstrated that African American patients get offered clinical trials less, but when they're offered clinical trials, they tend to accept clinical trial participation similar to non Black patients. So, you know, I mean, I think to Dr. Tulaney's point, we absolutely have to make sure that all members of the research team, whether that be the physician or the research assistant, trial coordinators, have that implicit bias training so that we're not automatically writing off patients that definitely need to be in these trials and probably would be willing to participate under the right kind of informed discussion. So I think we can move on to the next question, which asks, is there a genetic basis for triple negative breast cancer among Black women? And because I do so much talking about genetics as part of my practice, I think I'll start with this question. Um, so it's a great question. And it's an important uh, point to kind of make. Of all the breast cancer subtypes, we know that triple negative breast cancer is the most likely type of breast cancer to have a genetic basis. Um, As we continue to study triple negative breast cancers, we're getting a better idea of kind of how common it is to have a genetic etiology for your breast cancer. So, you know, in your kind of -of run-of-the-mill breast cancer that's not triple negative breast cancer, so for example, hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, you're going to see about five percent of patients have a genetic cause for their breast cancer. In triple negative breast cancer, we actually have studies showing that that number could be as high as 20%. Most studies show somewhere about 15 to to 17% of people with triple negative breast cancer will have a genetic mutation. Um, I think what is really, really important to emphasize is that we actually don't have good estimates in terms of kind of the prevalence of genetic mutations in black triple negative breast cancer patients as opposed to white triple negative breast cancer patients. Unfortunately, much of the genetics research we have was conducted in non-Hispanic white patient populations. We just now are starting to see kind of racial and ethnic diversity in our um, kind of research studies and patient-undergoing genetic testing. So right now, I don't think we have an answer in terms of um, whether or not, you know, there's a difference in the genetic basis, but I would say certainly black women have um, a genetic, Etiology uh, beyond their triple-negative breast cancer—that's probably pretty similar to other races, if not um, kind of more contributed to genetics.
0: Oh, I mean, I think it's a—it's a great question. Um, but as you point out, uh, we don't have great data about differences, um, you know, between black and white women, for example, uh, in genetic uh, risk. Uh, but you know, definitely there—there's got to be uh, something uh, with you know, genetic risk just given the high rates of triple negative breast cancer amongst the
1: black community. So we'll, we'll ask this question. I think, Ricky, we can start with you. What tactics have you implemented to improve communication and promote awareness with black women about the importance of genetic testing, screening, and treatment?
2: Um, we have started a, an education campaign to really you know educate black women about the importance of these things, these important things and um, one of the things that we're doing is we have an HBCU internship program. they're all pre-med students, pre pre-health career students and what we ask them to do is do an interview with their moms at the beginning of their internship and then also do a, a poll on, on their Instagram accounts to see if how many of their friends actually are aware of breast health. and when they start out it's zero. None of their friends can talk about breast health exams about screening about anything and guess what those conversations with their moms are really the first time that they've actually talked to their moms about breast health and then they work for 10 weeks they post on social media we give them a lot of content and by the end of the internship they can show that 85 percent of my friends now know how to do a self exam and so we're finding great great um, you know insight from these young women not only being an educator of their peers but also starting those important conversations at the kitchen table with their moms and their aunties and their grandmas. So it's so important to educate them when they're young, before they you know have risk of cancer, and before they you know well actually they, they're at risk even at that age, black women, but but also before they ha- you know have to even think about trying to do a clinical trial. So that's so important. The other thing is that we do a lot, a lot of education through what I call our breasty choir, talking to other you know to breast cancer patients about the importance of screening the importance of knowing your heart and and treatment options. Great, Ricky. What,
1: what about you, Dr. Delaney? Is there anything that you guys are doing at Dana-Farber initiatives to improve genetic testing or screening in minority patient populations? Any-
0: so I think we've learned that genetic testing is becoming more and more critical in all breast cancer patients, um, regardless of race, ethnicity, or even breast cancer subtype because of what we're learning is that there are drugs actually that can work in patients who have breast cancer, who have genetic mutations, but we won't know if they're candidates for those drugs if we don't know if they have a mutation. And so really, I think there needs to be a movement towards more universal testing for patients who've developed breast cancer. And that is a movement that our group has been working towards. One of the challenges is access to genetic counselors. Uh, And so one of the big areas of interest that our group has had is trying to get genetic counselors into the communities Um, where, you know, certainly we're at a very privileged institution where we have genetic counselors uh, available, but this isn't um, a common thing in, in many community locations. And so, you know, one of the great things about virtual technology is that you can do a telehealth consult for genetics, you can send someone a swab uh, to swab themselves at home and mail back. Uh, it's making genetic testing and counseling so much more accessible. And so I think we need to really move this into the community more. And that has been an area of outreach for our group. Um, Certainly, I'm in a different position because most of my patients already have breast cancer, right? I'm a breast oncologist, so I don't get, you know, what Ricky's doing, I think is very critical, which is to also get into the community for a prevention standpoint, um, which I think is also, you know, equally
1: important. Yeah, Dr. Salani, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think when I think about care and improving disparities, I think we have to definitely adapt to this mindset of kind of taking the care to where their patients are. And I think, you know, this idea of going into the community and using telegenetics and things like that is really a great way to try to move in that direction. Okay, Um, I think we can go on to the next question. Um, And Ricky, you talk so much about this, I think I'm gonna direct this one at you to start with. What are the barriers to including more black women in breast cancer clinical trials, and how can these barriers be overcome?
2: Um, Yeah, it's fear. It's fear. It's just fear from history, from perceptions, from, you know, I'm going to get the sugar pill. I think it's all the things that I spoke about earlier, but it's also we're taking her away her power. You know, black women are these powerful, amazing women that take care of everybody at the expense of themselves. Dr. Delaney, did you have other thoughts about this question? I mean, it's interesting
0: because I do... I do think education about treatment and trials is part of the critical nature to taking away that fear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it does mean that, you know, whether it's, you know, the black community, the Hispanic community, whatever ethnicity, um, you know, we need to, to be making sure we continue to educate and continue to earn that trust, uh, which I think is such a critical part of the shared decision-making process and, and coming to, to a good plan moving forward.
2: Yeah, that's that's
1: definitely true. And you know, I think the only thing I'll add is that I think in these situations with clinical trials, there is so much medical mistrust because of history. So I yes. also think it's important to kind of emphasize the patients when we talk about clinical trials. There now are protections that are in place for clinical trial participants because I think that's something that you know your everyday person is not going to realize. Well, you know, Tuskegee happened, and then the Tuskegee syphilis report happened, and then we we kind of Design these protection of human rights for research subjects um, kind of rules and regulations. So there are some protections. I think that's important to emphasize as well when you talk to Black patients about clinical trials. So Ricky, I think this is probably a great question for you. Um, what tools or resources are available to combat disparities in triple negative breast cancer?
2: Well, you know, I serve on the board of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and our website, tnbcfoundation.org. Has incredible resources for anyone with TNBC, despite your, you know, no matter your color. And we work really hard for it to be kind of um, a place of information, kind of the go-to place for information, support, resources, science. Um, just even just having a support group with women with TNBC. So we really try to make that available. Also within my foundation, Touch, we have a, um, a virtual support group once a month, and we have we talk about other things besides TNBC, but but um, whereas the TNBC Foundation has women with only TNBC, our, our, our foundation has resources for Black women with all kinds of breast cancer. So just having that platform to provide communication. And again, the voice of credibility is a breastie. So I know I can talk about breast cancer and TNBC in a different way than a doctor can. And so providing this outlet for conversation and just giving a hug and making people feel comfortable that they could ask anything is really important i think the one thing that really kind of is frustrating to tnbc survivors is you know normally the support groups that you go to for breast cancer are predominantly white women over 50 or 60. and um, we're usually younger and 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 we can't take tamoxifen and they're complaining about tamoxifen and you know and getting hot flashes and so just to have a place that's relevant about tnbc for women that look like us is really, really important. So making those tools available. We also have some tools on our website, touchbbca.org. And frankly, I answer the phone every day. I know this is my purpose. Um, You know, My doctor gave me two years to live and I'm on 10, and this is my purpose. I do it every day. I fight like a girl every day to help have these conversations and provide tools and resources for black women. So call me, tweet me.
1: Yeah, we'll have to remember Ricky's name. She's she's really doing very powerful um, work here for the triple negative breast cancer community, especially. <laughs> so the next question, Dr. Tolania, um, can you share your expert opinions on the prevalence of pdl one expression patterns and BRCA mutations in triple negative breast cancer, and then potentially comment a little bit on whether um, there are any known disparities or inequities when it comes to biomarker testing? Mm-hmm.
0: So. In general, um, we do test patients who have triple negative breast cancer. Um, we test their tumors for PDL1 if they have metastatic triple negative disease. We actually don't need to do that in someone with early stage triple negative breast cancer. Uh, and the reason we do this is because there's data to suggest in metastatic triple negative disease that if the tumor has the PDL1 receptor on it, that patients with that kind of triple negative breast cancer will benefit from the use of immunotherapy, specifically with the benefit of checkpoint inhibition with chemotherapy. Um, So it really is a critical part of making treatment decisions for our patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And similarly, for um, genetic testing, we do want to know if someone has a BRCA mutation to understand if they could be a candidate for a drug called a PARP inhibitor. So, you know, these two pieces of biomarker testing are really quite critical when trying to make treatment decisions for patients with particularly metastatic disease. And now, uh, even with early stage triple negative disease, understanding if someone has a BRCA mutation can impact treatment recommendations. So, um, you know, really, again, very critical. We know that about 40% of patients of metastatic triple negative breast cancer will have a tumor that is PDL1 positive. Um, And we know that about 10 to 15 percent of patients with uh, triple negative disease will have APRCA mutation. So, you know, these aren't rare findings um, and really are critical to understand. In truth, we don't know have great data about differences um, by, um, you know, different ethnicities or racial patterns. Um, I think much to Ricky's point, a lot of this is because of a lot of the research that has been done involves very few minorities. Um, So if you look at the major registration trials that led to approval, for example, for pembrolizumab, as Ricky pointed out, there are very few patients um, who are, for example, uh, black uh, or Hispanic. Um, And so getting data from large registration trials is even challenging, even though there were 1,100 patients, for example, in Keynote 522, you're still gonna have very limited data on uh, differences by um, ethnicity and race. And that's a challenge. And again, it shows that this is an area where we really need to do better.
1: So we, we've talked so much about kind of the aggressive nature of triple negative breast cancer. We've talked about how we really don't have any kind of drugs to prevent recurrence, as Ricky pointed out in her talk. And we know that these patients tend to have the worst prognosis of any breast cancer subtype. So with that, we can easily say there's a critical, critical need to expand treatment options for all patients with triple negative breast cancer. Dr. Delaney, can you just comment on some of the newer developments in, in the triple negative space over the last couple of years? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think it's been a really exciting time because we have seen new approvals for triple negative breast cancer. And particularly, I think one area that is of great interest is development of what we call antibody drug conjugates. So this really means that we take an antibody that is designed to target a particular receptor on a cancer cell and link it to very potent chemotherapy. And then that antibody binds to the receptor that's on that cancer cell it gets taken in to the cancer cell and releases its chemotherapy into the cell. And so a lot of people think of these as smart bombs or targeted delivery of chemotherapy. And I think it's pretty ingenious because it allows you to give drugs that are normally very toxic drugs that we couldn't just normally infuse, um, but can now when we link it to an antibody and we can deliver high doses into a cancer cell. And I think one other clever trick about some of the newer models of antibody drug conjugates is that once that chemo drug gets into the cancer cell, it can actually diffuse through the cell membrane into a neighboring cancer cell and kill it. And the reason that is sometimes critical is because not all cancer cells are the same. As sometimes we see heterogeneity within a tumor where we see for example that not all the cancer cells have the same receptors on them. And so let's say you had an antibody drug conjugate that was targeting trope two, um, and the trope two was only expressed on one cell, but not on the neighboring cell. Well then, you know, if an antibody drug conjugate didn't have chemotherapy that was being delivered that could diffuse into neighbors, then it wouldn't work in that neighboring cell, right? And so being able to have what we call bystander effect and, and get your drug into the neighboring cell sometimes can be quite critical in overcoming tumor heterogeneity. And so these newer antibody drug conjugates have been developed with that in mind. Um, you know, the very first antibody drug conjugate that was approved in breast cancer was a drug we call TDM1 or trastuzumab emtansine. that was FDA approved for HER2-positive disease and is a standard drug that we use both in early stage and uh, metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. That was developed with a bit of an older technology, so that drug cannot function by bystander effect. It has a non-cleavable linker um, and the payload or the chemotherapy that's being delivered does not diffuse uh, through the cell membrane. However, the newer drugs that have been developed, such as a drug called trastuzumab deruxtecan also known as TDXD, uh, which is FDA-approved for metastatic HER2-positive disease, does function by bystander effect and delivers very high doses of chemotherapy into the cell. Uh, and sasetuzumab govitecan, which is approved in triple negative breast cancer, uh, also can function by bystander effect. So again, um, nice to see these new technologies that are making antibody drug conjugates even more effective um, because of their new ability to deliver high doses of chemo and function by bystander effect. And so the drug that was uh, FDA approved for triple negative disease, again, is sasituzumab govotecan. Sometimes I call it sassy for short. Um, It is, um, interestingly, again, it's targeting trope two. And I think it's confusing for patients sometimes because we just told them they have a triple negative breast cancer that doesn't have estrogen, progesterone, or HER2. And so then they're like, well, why do you think there's this other receptor on the cancer cell? Um, But it turns out that you know, I think triple negative breast cancer truth is a very bad name, uh, because it doesn't mean that there aren't other receptors on cancer cells. Um, in fact, trope 2 is actually very prevalent uh, in the vast majority of triple negative breast cancers and actually is also on hormone receptor positive breast cancer cells. And so it's a clever way to be able to target the cancer cell when you know that that receptor is there. And so sasetuzumab is targeting the trope 2 receptor, and it's linked to a chemo drug, um, which It's called s 38 So it's delivering almost on each antibody, there are almost eight different molecules of chemotherapy attached to the antibody. So it's able to deliver a ton of chemotherapy, much more than we ever could by just infusing a standard chemotherapy drug. And so this drug was tested originally in early phase studies, but it looked so promising um, that it led to a randomized trial uh, called the Ascent study, which took patients who have metastatic triple negative breast cancer and randomize them to receive sasituzumab or to receive what we call treatment of physician's choice therapy. So the doctor could choose from a bucket uh, of different chemo drugs for which one to administer. Um, this was a trial that was really developed for patients who had pretreated metastatic disease. So they had to have had two lines of prior chemotherapy. Uh, so this was really a third line or beyond trial. The eligibility is a little interesting though, because if you had, a treatment for early stage disease and you relapsed within a year of that treatment, that counted as a line of treatment. So in fact, there were some patients in this trial that did receive sasituzumab as their second treatment for their metastatic uh, triple negative breast cancer. And what we saw, I think, was very impressive results because what happened was that the duration of time patients had their cancer controlled or the progression-free survival was dramatically better with sasetuzumab compared to treatment of physician's choice therapy. So it's 5.6 months for sasetuzumab compared to 1.7 months for the treatment of physician's choice therapy. And I think these data tell us a couple things. One is, unfortunately, in pre-treated metastatic triple negative breast cancer, standard chemotherapy drugs honestly don't work that well, right? We're seeing a median progression-free survival that's under two months, and I think this shows us that we really need to do much better, Um, but at least we find now a new drug with sasetuzumab that is able to do much better Uh, again, achieving a progression-free survival of almost six months. And I think importantly is allowing patients to live longer. Um, So overall survival was almost doubled from about 6.7 months to 12 months. um, Again, showing that the sasituzumab is able to keep disease control longer, but also able to allow patients to live longer with their metastatic triple negative disease. I think one question that I think we all had when we saw these data, well, is if it's targeting trope 2 wouldn't you think that if someone had more trope two expression on their cancer cell, that they would derive greater benefit from sasituzumab compared to someone, for example, who had a lower expression of trope two or no expression even of trope two. And so the study did look at this. They did it in a retrospective manner though. So they took archival tissue that's been sitting around. Uh, This wasn't necessarily a biopsy that was done immediately prior to going on to the trial. So I think there are some challenges with the data. We don't have trope 2 expression on all patients. It wasn't from, again, a baseline biopsy in all patients, but did provide, I think, some interesting data, which really suggested that all patients, regardless of level of trope 2 expression, did do better with sasetuzumab compared to standard chemotherapy. And so I think these data suggested that we don't need to be testing patients for trope 2 to figure out who's gonna benefit from treatment. It is interesting though that the patients who had intermediate to high levels of trope 2 expression did derive even greater benefit from sasetuzumab compared to the physician's choice therapy. Um, so the differences were larger in the higher expressors. Um, so I think again, there is interesting data here, but again, not enough to suggest we need to test patients for trope 2 expression to select those who are gonna benefit since all did benefit. But of course, then comes the question about what's the cost? Uh, So what are the toxicities of the drug? And you know, this is, well, it's an antibody drug conjugate. It is chemotherapy, right? You are still delivering chemotherapy. We do see chemotherapy toxicities. So all my patients, for example, lose their hair. So alopecia, very common uh, with this drug. Um, It does cause neutropenia um, and about half of the patients in the trial actually did require using growth factor support. So that's important, and that the neutropenia is significant enough that, you know, many patients do require growth factor to keep their blood counts up enough to keep on schedule. It can cause diarrhea. Um, Usually the diarrhea, however, is a low-grade diarrhea. So you're not, um, you know, this isn't something where you need to take prophylactic antidiarrheal therapy. Usually patients only need to use antidiarrheal therapy as needed. And for me, that has worked actually very well for the majority of my patients. Um, So generally speaking, again, major toxicities are hair loss, neutropenia, diarrhea, and fatigue. Um, So again, things that do need to be monitored in patients. Another question I think that arose was, if you remember, we said that the eligibility was a little interesting, that it did allow some patients who could have been second-line if they had relapsed within a year of their adjuvant therapy, and so they did look at outcomes specifically for those second-line patients and did find that they did similarly to the overall population in the trial, and so they did better uh, with sasetuzumab compared to chemotherapy uh, with a PFS of around 5.7 months compared to 1.5 months in the control arm. Um, So really this drug now has FDA approval as a second line and beyond treatment, uh, which has been really critical um, for our patients to be able to get access to the drug earlier, which was great um, to have that second line cohort of patients. Um, So there's certainly interest in trying to do better. Um, Can we move sasetuzumab, for example, to the first line setting? I think we all wanna have data about the benefits of sasituzumab earlier. Um, Our group is running a trial and that's specifically looking at the question, can we add immunotherapy to sasituzumab in the first line setting and make it work better? But really interestingly, in a PD-L1 negative population, so it is standard of care to give immunotherapy to PD-L1 positive, triple negative patient. We have not seen benefit to immunotherapy in PD-L1 negative patients with chemotherapy. But the question is, is if you use an antibody drug conjugate, which you know, is delivering so much more chemo into the cancer cell, can you get more antigen release from the cancer cell and potentially allow for better synergistic activity with immunotherapy? And so our, this particular trial uh, called the SAS eio study in triple-negative diseases randomizing first-line triple-negative metastatic patients to get sasetuzumab alone or to get it with pembrolizumab if they have pdl1 one triple-negative triple negative disease. And we're also doing a study in hormone receptor positive disease with a similar randomization of sasetuzumab with or without pembrolizumab uh, to see if we see benefits in other subtypes of disease as well with the combination. Um, But there are also lots of other combinations that are ongoing, and there's a trial, um, one of my colleagues is running at Mass General combining sasetuzumab with Talzoperib, so PARP inhibitor, looking for that synergistic activity. Uh, And again, there are also other trials combining it with immunotherapy. So I I think we're going to see a lot more uh, from sasetuzumab to come potentially in earlier lines and in other combinations. But what about other antibody drug conjugates in development for trope negative disease? I think one really interesting drug is called datapotumab deruxtecan, uh, also known as DATO-DXD or DS-1062. This drug is, interestingly, also targeting trope 2, uh, so the same receptor that sasetuzumab is targeting. And interestingly, it's also delivering a topoisomerase 1 payload. The payload is a little different. Um, it's not exactly SN38 like we see in sasituzumab, it is durextecin, so it's the payload that's also used in trastuzumab durextecin. Um, and this drug also can function by bystander effect. And we saw some very interesting early data that emerged from the use of uh, DATO-DXD in metastatic triple negative disease, where in fact we saw a response rate that was over 40% in pre-treated triple negative patients. That being said, it was from a small cohort of patients, only 24 patients, but I think very impressive data um, suggesting that this drug does have robust activity. And when we looked at the toxicity profile for this agent, generally speaking, it's been pretty well tolerated. I've used this drug in several patients to date on clinical trials and and also found it pretty well tolerated. It is every three weeks, uh, which is nice uh, compared to the sasetuzumab, which was two weeks on, one week off. And it does cause mouth sources. So the rates of stomatitis were pretty high in this trial. Our group has tried using uh, dexamethasone uh, mouth rinse for prevention, which I have found to be quite beneficial to many patients. But it doesn't really cause much in the way of neutropenia. Um, So very different from sasituzumab uh, with regards to neutropenia. And also doesn't cause the diarrhea like we've seen with sasituzumab. It does have nausea and fatigue. And so again, different toxicities with these different agents. Um, But again, very robust early data for response, and I think we're all eagerly looking forward to seeing more data for this drug um, to see, again, look at progression-free survival uh, in larger numbers of patients. Another antibody drug conjugate in development is um, by the CGEN group, which is targeting LIV1A. Uh, This ADC is targeting the LIV1A receptor and is linked to an MMAE payload, so a, different uh, cytotoxic drug that's a microtubule inhibitor. And this drug also has had nice activity in pretreated metastatic triple negative disease with an objective response rate of around 25%. And in fact, they've done some work combining it with immunotherapy, suggesting robust activity with even higher response rates of around 35%. And so more more work is ongoing uh, with this particular ADC. One thing I think that is important for triple negative breast cancer patients to realize is, again, that there are receptors on triple negative breast cancer cells. So we talked about trope 2 but interestingly, even though triple negative breast cancer patients have a HER2 negative cancer, you can still see a little bit of HER2 expression in some triple negative breast cancer cells. So about 25 to 30% of triple negative breast cancers will actually be HER2 low positive, meaning that they have one plus or two plus expression of HER2 and are not fish amplified. Um, so they have a little bit of receptor there. And so the thought would be is if some of these triple negative cancers have some HER2 expression, can we use that receptor as that anchor to get an antibody drug conjugate to bind to the cell and deliver its chemotherapy? And so interestingly enough, trastuzumab deruxtecan, which again is FDA approved in HER2 positive breast cancers, has been tested in HER2 low-positive cancers and has had very nice efficacy, where in fact, we've seen response rates that are just under 40% with TDXD and HER2 low-positive disease. And so there was a registration trial that was conducted comparing TDXD to physician's choice chemotherapy and HER2 low-positive metastatic breast cancer This trial has been fully enrolled. Um, It's called Destiny Breast 04 and will be reported likely in 2022. And so the thought is, is if that trial is positive, so if TDXD is better than chemotherapy, then we could get a new approval uh, for TDXD and HER2 low-positive cancers. And that could really change things because again, for triple negative disease, that's almost a third of patients who could have access to yet another antibody drug conjugate. It'll make us have lots of questions about how to think about sequencing of ADCs, um, but I think, again, would be uh, tremendous uh, for patients. There's also, again, work being done combining TDXD with other agents, uh, specifically with immunotherapy and triple negative disease. Uh, so the Begonia trial had investigated TDXD with Dervalumab in the first line metastatic triple negative setting for patients who have HER2 low positive, triple negative disease. And really the data was, again, small numbers of patients, but I think very dramatic data with over almost a 70% response rate, uh, really something we almost never see uh, such a high response rate. And so there's definitely interest in better understanding the benefits of the combination and whether or not the combination is truly benefiting pdl one negative patients. Uh, equally to pd one positive patients. Again, numbers here are so small. I don't think we can conclusively say that it's the synergy of the combination driving benefit in pd one negative patients. But again, we'll, we have to learn more. And so, really exciting to see the potential uh, for not only single agent ADC, but also potentially with uh, immunotherapy. And another ADC in development is a ADC targeting HER3. Uh, this is U31402 or petrotumab and um, This agent has been studied both in hormone receptor positive as well as triple negative disease. And they actually studied it in patients who had HER3 high and low expression. Um, specifically in triple negative disease and the HER3 high expressors, we did see about a 16% response rate. So there were some responses in this subgroup. And interestingly, it seems like activity is not necessarily dependent on degree of HER3 expression. Um, So, you know, I think, again, um, more work is needed to better understand the activity in triple negative disease because numbers are still small, but exciting to see, again, potential for other ADCs. Another class of drugs that I think is emerging and quite early in development are what we call probodies. Um, So if you think about ADCs, they're trying to target a receptor that is uniquely on the cancer cell but not on a healthy cell, right? Because you're trying to target delivery of a payload into the cancer cell and spare the normal healthy cells. But what if the target is both on the healthy cell and on the cancer cell? Well, you don't want the chemo to get delivered into the healthy cell. And so some smart people figured out, well, we could put a mask on the antibody that only comes off in the cancer cell, but doesn't come off when it hits a normal cell. And so these probodies bodies were very smartly developed to do that so that they can just deliver the chemotherapy into the cancer cell and spare the normal cells because the mask only comes off via enzymatic cleavage in the cancer cell itself. And so an example of such a drug is called CX2009. It is targeting CD166, which is present both on normal cells and cancer cells. But again, because of the mask, that mask only gets taken off in the cancer cell, so then you only get delivery of the payload into the um, impacted malignant cell. And so this agent actually looks very promising based on some very early data, both in hormone receptor positive as well as within triple negative breast cancer where we've seen responses of both subtypes. And so in fact, now there is a phase two study that is enrolling uh, patients getting CX2009 either with hormone receptor positive or triple negative disease and in fact is also looking at combination therapy with immunotherapy for metastatic triple negative disease. So, you know, I think again, a really exciting time where I think years ago we only had chemotherapy for metastatic triple negative breast cancer, and now we have immunotherapy, PARP inhibitors, antibody drug conjugates, and many other really exciting drugs in development. And so really, I think, very nice to see us finally making headway uh, for triple negative breast cancer. And so I, I'm definitely very excited about the new path ahead with many of these new antibody drug conjugates that appear to be very promising, and also excited about the combinations uh, that are being studied uh, with the really impressive early data that, that's emerging. So I am hopeful uh, that we are going to continue to see new drugs emerge, and hopefully we will continue to make headways in improving outcomes for our patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. So thank you again for the opportunity to kind of review some of these data, Uh, but maybe it'd be nice to think about some cases
1: to put these data into perspective. So Kristen, I'll pass it back to you. So I think now we can go on and move on to a case presentation. Um, So here's a case that we'll discuss tonight. A 56-year-old black woman reported filling a mass in her right breast and enlarged axillary lymph nodes. She had no family history of breast or ovarian cancer. She also ended up undergoing a core biopsy of the breast mass, which revealed a four centimeter high grade infiltrating ductal carcinoma. We looked at her IHC, which showed that her ER was negative, her PR was negative, and her HER2 was negative, consistent with what we call triple negative breast cancer. She had an FNA of the axillary node, which was positive for metastatic IDC. And unfortunately, at the time of her diagnosis, we were concerned um, about the potential for her having distant disease. So we got a CT of her chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and she had um, lesions showed, shown in her liver, which went, underwent biopsy, and ultimately came back showing triple negative breast cancer that had already metastasized to the liver. Dr. Does, um what additional tests should be done on her tumor
0: now? Yeah, no, great question. So I think this kind of comes back to the discussion we were having surrounding biomarkers, because for triple negative metastatic disease, it is critical to know if someone has um, a PDL1 receptor on their cancer. Um, so we do know that if someone has PDL1 positive triple negative breast cancer, we would consider offering immunotherapy. And I would recommend testing this patient for PDL1 using 22C3. And if the CPS is greater than or equal to 10, you would declare that person having a tri- PDL1 positive triple negative breast cancer. We also should consider BRCA testing. Uh, again, we did discuss the importance of genetic testing here. Certainly, it has implications for that patient and their family, but also has implications for treatment uh, because we do know that having a BRCA mutation means that use of a PARP inhibitor is actually superior to standard chemotherapy based on randomized trials in terms of progression-free survival. So really critical to get pdl one testing on the tumor and to offer that patient germline genetic testing. I will say that many of us also consider next-generation sequencing on the tumor. That being said, that those findings from, you know, Genomic testing of the tumor are not quite actionable at this time. There are very few actionable findings. Um, one would be high TMB, but the PDL1 and BRCA are the most critical components of
1: biomarker testing for this patient. Great information, Dr. Soines. I think we, we get that take home that you absolutely should be doing PDL1 testing, BRCA testing, your new diagnosis of uh, triple negative breast cancer patients. So then, just returning back to the case, so for this patient, after she had her liver biopsy, we did this pdl one testing on her, and we saw that her 22C3 uh, CPS uh, score was greater than 10, and then her SP142IC was greater than one. She also had genetic testing, and she was negative for a BRAF mutation. And so, Dr. Tulane, what would you now offer her as, as first-line therapy? So, because she has a PD-1
0: positive tumor, we generally would like to use chemotherapy with a checkpoint inhibitor, since we know that the combination is associated not just with progression-free survival benefit, but also overall survival benefit. And so, you know, prior to a few months ago, we had access to two different checkpoint inhibitors: we had atezolizumab or pembrolizumab in combination with chemotherapy. Um, however, and there has been withdrawal of atezolizumab's approval in the United States. So that means that, you know, this time we could only offer this patient chemotherapy with pembrolizumab. Obviously, prior to a couple months ago, this patient could have gotten a tezolizumab. So in truth, I would have been comfortable with either approach. I generally would use taxane with a checkpoint inhibitor in this um, de novo metastatic patient. Um, so in this case, probably paclitaxel pembrolizumab with the CPS greater than 10. But a couple months ago, again, you could have given nap paclitaxel a So either one of those would have been appropriate.
1: Thanks, Dr. Celaney. That's really important information and clarification for everyone to, to know about these different uh, pd one agents. Um, so returning back to our case, this patient in this case received nab paclitaxel and um, She initially had disease control for about 10 months, but then she had some progression of her breast cancer in the liver. So then returning to you, Dr. Celaney, now we have this patient who has had immunotherapy plus chemo as her first-line treatment, but progressed in about 10 months on that treatment. What, what would you offer her now?
0: Yeah, no, it's a good question. So remember, this patient does not have a BRCA mutation, so PARP would not be an option for this patient. So really, you're thinking about standard chemotherapy or sasituzumab. And so remember, sasituzumab technically has a second-line indication, um, you know, based on the ASCENT trial And so it is accessible in the second line setting. And because it performed so much better than chemotherapy, I generally do like to use sasetuzumab as early as possible. And so in the second line setting is when I typically will administer it. Um, And so for me, I would use sasetuzumab here.
1: Great, great points. I think that's a really great point about sasetuzumab because I think a lot of times we're thinking that we, we have to save it for kind of later lines, but you make an excellent point of clarification. I hope that you leave um, today's educational seminar really with a better understanding of some of these health disparities and inequities in triple negative breast cancer, both related to diagnosis and treatment. Dr. Delaney did an absolute fabulous job of, of covering kind of where we're at with current approvals related to antibody drug conjugates, but also the future of ADCs for breast cancer. And then I hope you also leave with the take-home that it is critical that we incorporate shared decision-making without these implicit bias that we talked about a lot of times to lead us towards this path of more inclusive care for triple negative breast cancer and better outcomes for our patients. Thank you so much for participating in this activity.
0: You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.